90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, it's really hot everywhere. <laughs> yes, yes it is. Every day this week, I have sweat entirely through all of my clothing. Oh, yeah. Um, this is super gross. Like, you know, in Canyon City, the humidity was like 5%. And when I come down out of that mountain here, it always feels like I'm drowning. And it is disgusting here. I'm ready to go back. In fact, I'm going back tomorrow. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, while I was at field camp, something new and exciting happened. <gasps> What's that? I saw two mountain lions wow yeah mm-hmm. they walked right through the middle of our camp less good uh-huh two of them together so that was weird mm-hmm. and it was in the middle of the day and they walked right through our camp and we said holy bleep mountain lions <laughs> and ran outside to look at them and they just looked at us and walked off so that was a new experience. And when I say we, it was the TAs. I told all the students to stay inside, just just so the three people listening know. <laughs> Safety first. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah. there would be somebody to call the authorities to come find the Correct. pieces Correct. <laughs> yeah, and so um, our caretaker at camp said that they were probably kittens, which sounds adorable, but they were probably still like 70 or 80 pounds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he said that's... Um, Probably why we saw it, too, because he said they'll stay together for a couple of years. And they both looked about the same size. It didn't look like a male and a female. So that was a new experience. I've never seen a mountain lion in the wild. Though being terrified of seeing one in the wild, when you saw one, you ran outside. <laughs> so you know me. I'm scared to death of bears. I have a big bear thing, right? Yeah. And I am not scared of mountain lions at all because I figure if one's going to kill me, I'm never going to hear it coming. Like, it's just going to come out of nowhere, and it's going to be done. Like, a bear, I feel like it's going to be, what was that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio where he finally won the Oscar? Like, <laughs> it's going to be that situation where, like, I hear it coming, it's real loud and terrifying and all that jazz. So, hmm. so yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really odd. But we set up our game cameras that we brought because we're nerds like that. And we never captured anything else, though. So we saw them with our eyeballs, and then they were like, oh, these people are back. We're out of here. <laughs> so right. We never saw them again, but it was still exciting. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Being, being eaten alive seems like one of the worst ways to go. Oh, yeah, I know, but, like, it's a cat, you know? Maybe it'll just get your neck first and be done with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. I got cats. I watch them, you know, fake kill stuff all the time. <laughs> yeah. Not really kill. Let's not go that far. Now, the question is, <laughs> did you go out there and draw boxes <laughs> and see if they would sit? <laughs> you better believe that I passed out that paper to the students after this line thing happened. <laughs> <laughs> I 100% did that. <laughs> yeah. So it's been an exciting week. Let's hope that this show is just as exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we've actually been doing a, a pretty cool experiment at work. Ooh, okay. So it's very hot, as you mentioned. Yes. We only have a moderately sized air conditioner on our metal building. Mm-hmm. Yes. And with four people working inside <laughs> mm -hmm. and lots of machines running and the sun beating down, it doesn't do the job. Okay. So, this week, we got up on the roof, and we installed soaker hoses on the <gasps> roof. Oh, goodness. Okay. And we're trickling water onto the roof. Mm-hmm. And being the good scientists that we are... Oh, my goodness. You put some... We, <laughs> we, we, we instrumented the roof. Yep. Some hygrometers up there. <laughs> well, we put on the underside of the tin, between two layers of insulation in the building... We put temperature sensors. Okay. And on the south-facing roof, we put a hose on half of it and not on half of it. Oh, my gosh. This is for real. All right. <laughs> no, I said experiment. I mean experiment here. Oh, yeah. Here. This is for real. <laughs> uh, 
25 degree temperature <gasps> drop in the insulation layer of the building. You're kidding me. Yes. Oh my goodness. Like, okay, soaker hoses. So you've just got them trickling out. Yeah, like water is dripping off the edge of the roof. Okay. But not at an incredible rate. It's like a light rain shower. My goodness, 25 degrees. And it turns out that a lot of industrial plants have done this for years. Oh, did you know that beforehand? No. You said, grab the soaker, boys. <laughs> uh, well, somebody had mentioned, like, oh, you should, you should uh, wet your roof. Uh, huh? And they said, yeah, evaporative cooling on your roof. And I thought, mm -hmm. well, that, mm -hmm. that could work. Uh, so, unfortunately, wow. we also found out that uh, it helps you find leaks in your roof. <laughs> I mean, that's an added benefit, right? <clears throat> yeah, well, so today we had to shut the system off because we had a significant leak that we found. Oh, my gosh. And when we shut the system off, the air conditioner stopped being, like, before it was cycling, it was keeping at 76 in the building, mm -hmm. and it would turn on and off. Uh, it didn't turn, turn off, off the rest of the day, and it was 79 when I left. So it's oh making a gosh. large difference. That's unbelievable. Okay, well, so I feel good about my decision yesterday to, you know, keep walking outside and watering around the chicken coop for my newly acquired chickens to stay cool. So Well, and we're, we're going to try now to... I have a flow meter somewhere, and I can't find it. I hate it uh, when that happens. <laughs> I know. To measure how much evaporation we're actually getting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because I calculated if we were to get a gallon a minute, it would add... So we have a five-ton air conditioner, which is the same size as most residents. Okay. Uh, units. For your how many square foot shop? Uh, it's about 2,400. Okay. So not enough. But if we yeah. get a gallon of a minute our gallon a minute evaporation off the roof, it's like adding almost another ton <gasps> to our wow. air conditioning capacity. That's impressive. So now the next step, because we did calculate, well, how, <laughs> how much is all this water going to cost? Yes. A assuming a gallon a minute, which again, we don't know if that's what it is, but we just worked with a nice easy number. Mm -hmm. About 130 bucks a month. That's 40-something thousand gallons. I'm going to guess that's way under your electric bill. It's under. It's still a chunk of. So now we're debating, is the next step to get guttering installed? Ooh, and recycle? And recirc the water. Because we don't really mm -hmm. get much from conduction. It's, you know, a couple of orders of magnitude less than evaporation. Right. Because uh, then we can collect rainwater and we can just refill the barrel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially and where can, you are. Yeah, well, and we can just measure the uh, the height of the water in the barrel. And however much that goes down is how much water we evaporated that day. So we can calculate mm -hmm. how many additional ton hours of energy we saved. We save. That's awesome. Oh, man. I love it when nerding happens. <laughs> During and the normal now, course of a day. <laughs> you know, and if we upgrade to run the pumps on solar, then it is basically free cooling. Uh, that was my next question, was how much electricity are those pumps going to cost you? We've already got the, uh, the control system somewhat designed to have a rain sensor, so when it's raining, <laughs> we don't turn the system on. Uh, we turn it on an hour... Uh, we turn it on about sunrise, and we turn it off an hour after sunset, that sort of thing. Oh, man. This is amazing. <laughs> I, I'm quite excited. It is a very fun little instrumentation project. That's, wow. I would, I would have never guessed. Like, I would have been shocked if you had said it was 10 degrees difference. Yeah, 25. Fahrenheit, obviously, right? Fahrenheit. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> it was also shocking how hot it was between the layers of insulation. It was over 140 degrees Fahrenheit. <gasps> oh my gosh. Do you have a white roof? You have a white we do. roof. Yeah. Yeah. But wow. all of the heat from the shop rises and the solar radiation coming down, 
Uh, it's just the perfect storm at the peak of the building. It's insanely hot. Oh, my gosh. So we also installed some fans in the ceiling. Yes. To circulate the air. Yeah, that seems like a great idea. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, I'd, I'd really like to get some of those big industrial, like, warehouse fans. Oh, those are the things of nightmares, but yes. Thousands of dollars to mm-hmm. get those installed. The ones that are, like, six foot tall. and Or bigger, yeah. Uh, this one, you know, we, we went to Harbor Freight and bought three 20-inch floor fans ah, and yeah. bolted them to the roof with self-drilling screws. Ah, 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 there you go. Um, we had a box fan that we probably had for between, we couldn't exactly remember, between 17 and 20 years we've owned this box fan, and it died in the heat. It was what I was using for the chickens. It was so sad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's been it's been rough. I heard them talking, explaining heat domes on the radio today. So. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wanted to say, we call that the death ridge, but... Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Well, so, yeah. I will uh, keep you posted on how our test goes and how Please. the development of our system goes. Uh, guttering is going to cost me like $1,000, so I haven't decided if we're going to do it yet. Yes, correct. Um, but, I mean, you know, you have five more summers in that building, maybe, then it might be worth it. Yeah. So. Also, it keeps the water off my foundation, which I kind of like. It is always good, correct. Because, yeah. you know, haven't you had flooding issues there? So We haven't. It may actually help. <laughs> some of the doors that flood to mm-hmm. not flood so bad. Exactly. So you could be saving on multiple fronts with this. Like, this is a great yeah. idea. I love it. Now, we've installed water sensors out in the shop already to wake me up at 1 a.m. so I can go up there and mop. <laughs> oh, the joys of owning your own business. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, well, anyway, so we were talking about uh, this week's show, and I picked a totally different topic. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm really sad that I missed my segue into this by saying, what's shaking, John? <laughs> right. Well, in this case, it would be, uh, how shaken is it, Chen? <laughs> it's five shaken. <laughs> There's nothing like a good old arbitrary numeric scale, scale. Oh, my gosh. So I'm really interested to talk about this because I feel like this is something that people that teach intro geology either for majors or non-majors sort of struggle with i know we had that richter scale show that still is i know (laughs) (laughs) i know and i still just want to intensity scales are nice to teach in a 50 minute class (laughs) that's all i'm gonna say this is what i show the same exact graph this is what i use done how shaky was that earthquake? <laughs> Stuff fall off the wall or not? Okay. <laughs> well, and the intensity scale has a purpose. It's for an arbitrary description of the effects of an earthquake. It has nothing to do with the energy. Well, okay. It's not directly related. It's There's no formula. We're just saying how bad was the shaking where you were. And the reason it still gets used is because, guess what? Like the did you feel it questionnaires, Mm -hmm. they determine the Mercalli Mercalli intensity scale. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was surprised actually at when the Mercalli intensity scale was developed. Because I would have thought that we developed this scale... Basically, as outreach, like together stuff, together data from the public, because it isn't, you know, an exact, it's this arbitrary scale. I would have thought that's why it was created, but it was created a lot earlier than that, right? Like Mer- Giuseppe Mercalli was alive 1850 to 1914. I would not have guessed that. Yeah. So when you don't have a worldwide network of instrumentation that you can calculate magnitude from you're left with well what can you do well you can see how damaged buildings were how people report they felt the shaking and make maps of that so in 1902 Giuseppe Mercalli came up with the Mercalli intensity scale and it was not the first arbitrary intensity scale also super surprising to me because I really would have thought that this was an internet thing (laughs) 
Right. Uh, so the Rossi Foral scale was earlier than the Mercalli scale. Oh, why did we abandon that? Because we use the Mercalli scale now, right? Right. So, I mean, it was 20 years before. It was a little more primitive. It was a 10-tier system. Okay. Uh, and it did make mention of the seismometer. So... You know, for a a one, it's recorded by a single seismograph. Oh, okay. All right. So still something that not the public wouldn't have access to necessarily. True, but then you get to an eight, and it says fall of chimneys. Oh, so it, it's a mix. Mm, interesting. Um, and you want to know something really surprising? There were places in the world that reported Rossi Farrell intensities up until the mid nineties. <gasps> Post internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no kidding. I've never even heard of that scale. So. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's not very common at all, uh, and like so many things in seismology and geology and science, uh, there's more than one Mercalli scale. Uh, I was going to ask this because I wanted to pull up. I didn't pull up my lecture notes. I pulled up some web pages, and there's the Mercalli Cancani Seberg scale, the Mercalli Wood Newman scale, and then even Richter edited it, which I think is really funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, what are these differences? Like, are, I'm assuming they're all just varying exactness of how shaky was it. Pretty much, but so the Mercalli scale, you know, we said 1902, that's actually Giuseppe Mercalli's second intensity scale. Okay. Mm-hmm. So earlier, uh, in fact, almost 20 years before that, he formulated his first intensity scale. Okay. That one not, it was had, also 10, right? It only had six degrees. Oh, there we go. And funny enough, it was criticized for being a ripoff of the Rossi Farrell scale, ah. even though it had six and Rossi Farrell had 10. That's crazy. And then in 1902, he published one with 10 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then that was fine. That wasn't a ripoff at all. <laughs> and the other big change was he went from just very, very brief descriptions to a little more wordy expanded versions of what each of the intensities feels like. Okay. But when I look at the Mercalli scale now, like the one that I show and just say Mercalli scale, it has 12. Yeah. So that is where two years <laughs> later, uh, Adolfo Cancani okay. proposed two additional categories. Okay. And uh, the names did not stick. Uh-huh. So, uh, Cancani wanted to call the two additional categories, catastrophe and enormous catastrophe. Enormous catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, see, all my students who I say, quit adjectiving and the heck out of your thesis. See, even big name scientists do it too. <laughs> yep. And then about 10 years later... Uh, Seberg, August Seberg, comes along and put a peak ground acceleration value. So now we're starting to get numbers. Oh, Instruments no. are becoming more widespread. Now we're starting to put numbers to these, too. That sounds like the fajita versus fajita, not fajitas. That's what I had for dinner. Uh, <laughs> the fajita scale, yes. <laughs> yes, and the enhanced fajita scale. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> sizzling, extra sizzling. <laughs> enormously sizzling <laughs> right oh this is gonna make me hungry okay um but so you got mercalli <laughs> mercalli cancani morali mm -hmm. cancani seaberg because I, okay you added some values i don't know if that really is that still in use because i've never seen values associated with this it, it never caught on okay here oh okay the European seismic community, especially the Italian seismic community, used it pretty extensively for a while. Oh, all right. Um, but you got to remember that all of this 
was not written and published in English. Mm-hmm. It was all in Italian. And okay. it didn't really come to the U.S. until the 1930s. All right. I mean, Italy's got a lot of earthquakes. I'll give you that. Yeah. <gasps> so these... in the 30s, Wood Newman actually translated and brought it over. Uh, and they modified, of course. <laughs> oh, my so gosh. <laughs> Mercalli expanded his descriptions. They modified and condensed the descriptions including throwing out all of Seberg's PGA values. Ooh. This sounds like a really good fight back in the 30s, huh? Right. You know, one of those kind of hopping around, backwards fists. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, exactly. And you've got all that, you know, continental drift business coming about, too. That had to be an exciting decade for science. Yeah. And, you know, the I, I would got to say, I kind of agree with the removal of PGA values. Mm-hmm. Because it makes it less accessible or because of how they're recorded? Because, okay, a chimney fell. So that means the peak ground acceleration was XGs. Mm-hmm. Depending on what kind of chimney, right? Was it a chimney on a European church that's been there for 200 right. years? Was it a chimney on a modern constructed building? Well, uh-huh. Yeah, no. It, it, it doesn't... You know, even in the, well, that's part of the Fujita, enhanced Fujita tornado scale, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, you see things like well-constructed right. building. And there's a lot of criteria that go into that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that makes sense. But just translating into English and taking off part of it, does that really get your name added to the scale? Uh, well, in fact, for a while, it was referred to as the Wood Newman scale. So not only did it get <gasps> the names on it, it, it dropped the original names. <laughs> oh, that's shocking. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I'm glad we went back to just calling it the Mercalli scale, even if that's wrong. <laughs> oh, well, no, it, we're not done modifying it. Oh, my goodness. So You seismologist. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of like the XKCD comic about like, you know, <laughs> There are too many standards. We need a standard to unify them all. Yes. Now there are too many plus one standards. <laughs> uh, so we fast forward into the mid-50s. All right. And guess who touches the scale next? Now this is Richter. This is Richter. <laughs> Charles Francis Richter. Okay. Did he touch the scale first and then get mad and make his own? Uh, no, so he actually, oh. this was totally independent. This was okay. after the Richter scale. Okay. He and wanted, He wanted all the scales. <laughs> well, he specifically did not put his name on it and did not want it in any way associated with his name mm. because he didn't want the intensity scale and the actual mm. magnitude scale to get confused. Right. This, oh, that's a scientist right there. So <laughs> he instead... Stopped calling it Wood Newman scale and called it the modified Mercalli scale. Which is so that's where the modified came in. Oh wow. Not from the five other times it was modified before then. Right. Hmm. And you'll see uh, so when you see a intensity published, if the people that did it are being good little scientists, <laughs> you'll see something like MM thirty one. Or right. MM56. Okay. That's Modified Mercalli 1931. Modified Mercalli uh, 1956. Okay. Now. <laughs> oh, no. Now we go into the early 1990s. <sighs> and the scale gets touched again. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, Stover and Kaufman. <laughs> okay. Uh, they, they did this really nice work, actually, in 93. Uh, the historical seismicity of the United States. Oh, okay, that's cool. And they <laughs> they uh, ignored what Richter did. All right. And instead, they assigned intensities for the historical seismicity of the U.S. using a slightly modified Wooden Newman thirty-one scale. Oh my goodness. Okay. So now we have MM31, MM56, and then in 93, Stover and Kaufman jump back to 31, but modify it. 
wonder why. Hmm. I don't know the full story behind that. Has to be a some kind of slap in the face science story, I feel like. And then when oh, you no. see the USGS report intensities, guess what they use? Well, I would think they would use that one, the Stover and Coffin one, since they were USGS people. They use Wooden Newman 31. <laughs> okay. Also, the USGS. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They merge everything above category 10 and call it 10 plus. Okay. So it's not even really Wooden Newman. Yeah, because they had 12, right? They had 12. So they take Whoa. Kincani's 11 and 12, merge them, and everything above a 10 or a 10 is called extreme, and it's X and X+. plus. <laughs> if you're going to... I mean, if you're going to delineate them by a plus, why would you not just keep it 11 and 12? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> Who reviewed this paper? <laughs> and then one of my favorite sentences, this is not in peer-reviewed literature, but just in an article on the Mercalli scale. The correlation between magnitude and intensity is far from total. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) Because, I mean, think about it. You're measuring what somebody felt. Right. When you have large earthquakes in central Oklahoma, we feel them here in northwest Arkansas. Mm -hmm. I would report it as, you know, a one. Right. Maybe a two. You might report it as a five. Yeah, because you've never felt the ground move before, so. Well, we're further from it. Oh, oh, oh. I might here in North. You might, yeah. Yes, correct. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And you see these little intensity maps if you go to earthquakes. And it's cool because you can play the game of find the sedimentary basins, which is all the hot spots of shaking. (laughs) Yes, I believe we talked about Mexico City and the like. It's like your own, you know, poor man's version of a seismic study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That is true. I mean, so here's my question, though. I mean, every time when we had all that induced seismicity earthquakes here, you know, I mean, the second I'd get woken up or whatever, I would obviously get on and report what I felt. Um, but how did they just go out and survey people in the 30s? for this is that how it worked <laughs> i would know? assume that's what they had to do i don't know but i would i would guess they went door to door yeah because i mean what's that what do they call it when twitter moves faster than the actual earthquake right yeah <laughs> so people are tweeting about the earthquake before you know people yeah vt is faster than uh-huh. <laughs> the speed of sound in the ground it's crazy that's unbel- that's unbelievable to me um, but yeah, that's interesting to think like that a whole bunch of poor seismicity grad students have to go out and just ask people if their chimneys fell down. I would love to see whatever visual aid chart they had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hope it was the sad face to the smiley face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On a scale of one to ten with, you know... <laughs> One being a slightly annoying sensation and 10 being the most extreme pain you can imagine. <laughs> exactly. I how hate big, those little surveys like how that. How big was your earthquake? Right. <laughs> so, I mean, even when you look up the modified Mercalli, inten- in- modified Mercalli intensity scale, like the description of the damage is still a little bit different in the different ones that I'm looking at. So that's... Uh, that's interesting, too. Like, I wonder how many people sort of just change it around. Right. And <laughs> I'm sure that they carefully consult a cognitive psychologist mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly interesting. Um, and I do love the not felt, too. <laughs> Except by very few under especially favorable conditions. It's- that's a one favorable conditions <laughs> like you're lying in the sedimentary basin and you feel 
So you go from not felt to weak to light to moderate to strong to very strong, severe, violent, and extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the descriptions do sound sort of like Fujita scale. Some well-built wooden structures are destroyed. Most mm-hmm. masonry and frame structures are destroyed with foundations. Rails are bent. I love the rails bent. That's the extreme category is that you've bent rails. <laughs> Yeah. And then the uh, the category 12 here is terrifying. Just listen to the description of this. Damage is total. Waves are seen on ground surfaces. Lines of sight and level are distorted. Objects are thrown upwards into the air. Yeah. That's intense. Line of sight is blocked because the ground is, is waving. In your way. That's unbelievable. Uh, If you want to see something that I imagine this would look like, there are some very interesting videos of underground nuclear tests where you see ground rolls on the order of feet. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. We were in a, um, a copper mine, and they let it. This was for a class. And they were going to blow a wall. And they let us do it. I mean, we didn't set the charges or anything. (laughs) But we got to, like, get on the radio, say, you know, fire in the hole. We got to press the buttons. It was super neat. And I remember seeing the ground roll on that. And that was unbelievable. And it was probably only, you know, a couple of inches but you right. could see it, you know, propagate. Obviously, we recorded it. And you could see it propagate out from that. Like, can you imagine 10 feet of ground roll or something ridiculous like that in an earthquake? Throwing yeah, I mean, I think single-digit feet, you know, low single-digit, but still, it, that's plenty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you couldn't stand up in that and objects thrown upward into the air because of the ground roll. Because you're riding this thing like, oh, that's terrifying. But then I you look like, at oh, good. Okay, you look at those pictures of the damage from the Alaska earthquakes, and you could see, you could see that, you know, see that that obviously happened. Right, for sure. So, hmm. I, I like the description of light too, because when I was in Norman for the the big earthquake, mm-hmm. my description was it's I thought a truck had run off the road and hit our building oh okay and lo and behold <laughs> mercalli intensity four uh, uh, felt uh, indoors by many outdoors by few during the day at night some are awakened dishes win- dishes windows and doors are disturbed walls make cracking sounds sensations are like a heavy truck striking a building oh my gosh which one of these is like a donkey scratching itself up against your trailer <laughs> Yeah, probably, you know, a two. Is a two? <laughs> um, that joke is because that's what one of the news outlets in Oklahoma City ran. <laughs> that's the person they interviewed after that, after that earthquake because they said the trailer was shaking around and they thought the donkey was scratching itself up against the side of the trailer again, and that's what was shaking the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Oh, yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> I believe I made lots of Mercalli jokes associated with that right after that earthquake, too. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, that's very interesting. Yeah, felt by nearly everyone is moderate, you know. Even very strong, negligible damage in buildings of good design and construction. So Yeah, well, and it's something I try to remember, too, because, you know, if you said, well, it'll feel like a truck hit the building... Like, if I hadn't felt that, I'd go, eh, yeah, sure. Right. And I think as scientists especially, we're pretty sometimes quick to dismiss anecdotal evidence from non-scientists. Yes. Mm -hmm. But anybody that's been near a tornado will tell you, yeah, that sounded like a freight train. Yep. Uh, Anybody that has been an earthquake like this, you often hear it felt like a truck hit the building. Um or it felt like, you know, there was a semi going by. But mm-hmm. you hear all the same kind of sensations. And when we didn't have the instruments to go, whatever, uh, yeah. 
that that's the sensations we went on and we learned a lot from it. It's very interesting because those are very mechanistic metaphors that we use, but that's very similar to like native science uses animistic metaphors. You know, a thunderstorm is the thunderbird, but it's, it's still a metaphor and it's still describing a scientific event and it's still real data that we turn into information about an earthquake, even though it's like a big truck passing very close by. Still a metaphor. Right. Uh, and I will say, too, that modified Mercalli is really mostly just used here now. Oh. Uh, so I'll give you a sampling of some of the other scales that are out there. Okay. Uh, though we won't go into them. But the Lidu scale, the European macroseismic scale, modified Mercalli, that's uh, used in one or two other places, uh, Medvedev Spanier Karnik scale, <laughs> Japanese Meteorological Agency seismic intensity scale. Oh, well, that makes me happy. <laughs> the Pilvolkls earthquake <laughs> intensity scale. I'm real glad you're reading this list, Tommy. <laughs> and the Central Weather Bureau seismic intensity scale. And look at all these weather people in charge. It's great. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, why do you think this is just that there are so many scales? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, this, this is a guess on my part, but I would think that the references to what it feels like don't translate well to different parts of the world. Yep. That's what I would guess too. And now with the internet, you can have people immediately give you this info. And so you need something that's like set up for your people essentially. Well, you know, if if your population is mostly, you know, rural rice farming communities or something, mm -hmm. saying that a semi hit your building, yeah. did it feel like that? Like, that's not going to mean anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or, exactly. well, you know, it chimneys fell. Well, there are no chimneys in this part of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I, th I think it's probably largely based on the culture and yeah. the re points of reference they have. I want to say that I think donkeys scratching themselves on buildings is fairly ubiquitous worldwide, but... I mean, you know, <laughs> the, the Oklahoma Geologic Survey should just make their own scale. I agree, and that should be definitely right in the middle. I mean, yeah. speaking from someone who's actually had to run a donkey off of her front lawn before. <laughs> Melvin, the donkey yep. from down the road, yeah, he got out and was scratching himself on our front door. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. Well, that was, um, that's really interesting. Uh, I didn't realize how much that had changed over the years and that we still use this nearly 100-year-old one, really. Well, and the most infuriating thing is it's all just called, like, Mercalli scale. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's not infuriating to Giuseppe Mercalli. <laughs> just everyone else that worked on it. Right. <laughs> Modified by. <laughs> right. Or the fact that, you know, several times we've just thrown out the original name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that too. Uh, that'd be my look. I will say that I did pull up the seismicity of the United States from 1568 through 1989 because this looks really cool. Right. <laughs> it's 427 pages, but still looks like a good read. <laughs> if you want to know the history of seismic activity, there you go. Yeah, it's pretty neat. So. All right. Well, I don't know about you, but I need uh, I need some carbs after that long and brain intensive discussion. <laughs> I particularly want to know how if we you know break carbs, what what is that on the Mercalli scale? It's true. Uh, <laughs> the, the lasagna intensity. <laughs> well, that brings us to everybody's favorite segment of the show: Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Brought to you by Daryl. <laughs> Daryl, we're going to have to put you on the payroll. Yeah, 100%. This whole Fun Paper Friday is just Fun Papers with Daryl. Right. Um, and so this is in Science Advances, and it's Morphine Pasta and Beyond by Tao et al. And the et al. is like 20 people. There are quite a few et al. et al. et al.s on that, yes. Mm -hmm. And did you, I mean, there are nine different organizations. I can't imagine trying to write this paper. 
So can you imagine how long the revision process took? I know, nine different ones. I want you to write them and be like, did you guys, you know, how did you handle version control? <laughs> right, or, you know, take the more totalitarian approach of, I'm going to submit this. You can either be on it or not. <laughs> you know, I just got off of a geology paper with, I think there were six, five or six different institutions on there. And it's like, it worked pretty well, but it was definitely still the old school thing of track your changes or, and we'll just send them around. So there was an intern at a place that I worked once <laughs> whose sole internship was, there was a large, like 50 author document. Oh my gosh. Her sole job was to take 50 authors' worth of Track Changes Word documents <gasps> and merge them into one. Oh, my gosh. That's, like, the worst internship to have, but the most useful intern. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, how terrible for that person. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Anyway, what's, uh, what are we morphing? What are we doing here? <laughs> So this is an interesting, I guess, material science paper. Mm-hmm. Seems like it. Turns out that a ton of the landfill waste is from food packaging. That makes sense, especially after the pandemic. Right. Well, that's all Amazon boxes. <laughs> uh, so uh, these authors said, well, could we make food that morphs into shape after you unpack it. Mm. And they point out that shape is important for things like mouthfeel and cooking and all of these things that I generally honestly pay no attention to. <laughs> yeah, because chicken strips taste the same everywhere. Yeah. <clears throat> My philosophy has been if it's, if it's good and mostly carbs, I eat it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So they said, well, imagine like a box of curly pasta mm -hmm. or bow ties even. Mm -hmm. Those have very, very high porosities, like 30, 40, 50, 60%. Okay. Airspace. What if, and also they can get damaged in shipment. Like, you know, they get jostled right, yeah. around too much and they all get broken up and it's mm -hmm. sad. Yes, it is sad. So what if it all came in like a little flat pack and oh you gosh. peeled the top off this flat pack, you popped the pasta in your water, and as it cooked, it morphed itself into that higher volume shape. That's so strange. So I imagine that you're going to have to engineer the little glutens inside to stretch in certain directions, right, as you so, add water to the matrix. That uh -huh. would be the food science approach. Okay. It's not the approach they took. Oh, okay. How'd they do this? So that turns out to be pretty difficult to do. Yeah, seems like it. <laughs> you could do it, but manufacturing food, you have to do it real cheap mm -hmm. to make any money. Yeah. Especially something like pasta. Right. And there's tons of regulations about what you can put in food. Uh, you know, in, in an engineering application, we would say, like, oh, we'll just use a bimetallic strip in there, no problem. We can calculate exactly how much it will strain given certain... Can't do any of that. It's got to be edible. It's got to be cheap. It's got to be easy to mass produce, mm -hmm. preferably on basically existing equipment. You're right. Okay. So they said, well, what if we put groovy cut patterns? And instead of using material differences, we used amount of material differences to cause the object to strain. Okay. Yeah, this makes sense. Um, so my friend brought over this machine because I'm a big nerdy scrapbooker. And we cut out these spirals that had different groove patterns on them. And then as you roll them up into three dimensions, after you peel them off of the two-dimensional sheet, they make different, like, petals of a flower. 
So that's what I envisioned when I was looking at figure five of this, because that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah, so the simple tests were things that look like a timing belt, like a mm-hmm. toothed belt. Yep. And it's flat, and then you expose it to either cooking or they also did some experiments with this PDMS material right. uh, where they used a, uh, a solvent to activate it, mm-hmm. and it curled up into kind of a potato chippy shape. Okay. Yep. So then they made a computer model based on that, and they made their own pasta. I love that they specify the <laughs> model of kitchen art, art. No, sorry, cuisine art. Yeah. Mixer that they use. Yeah. I would love to see the justification form for that ah, when they had ah, to purchase it. Gosh, no kidding. <laughs> oh, that's great. Or oh, guess I better take this home. What are we gonna do with this afterwards? <laughs> right. <laughs> they have to make pasta every Friday for the whole lab. <laughs> so they did this, and then they calibrated their computer model based on the engineering material, the PDMS, mm-hmm. and then the pasta they made. And the model agreement with reality is stunning. That's awesome. And now all material scientists are like, yep, only working in pasta from now on. <laughs> I mean, look at figure six in this paper. I encourage mm-hmm. everybody to. The, the PDF is freely available. These are really great figures, too, by the way. Yes, somebody put a lot of time into these. Yeah, they're really good. Like, this or is... every author put like ten minutes in. One <laughs> or that. <laughs> this is one of those things where you really could just read the figure captions and totally get it. So the simple designs, like a wave or a twist, I kind of expected those to work. Uh huh. The wing design. Mm-hmm. The box. It's so like, good. Yeah. Like, the you can't even, besides the color, like, if you false-colored that pasta, you would not hardly be able to tell the model from the pasta. And it's all just with these little groovy patterns, which would be super easy to put into dough in a manufacturing facility. Super easy. Like, they look good. Yeah, and so we could reduce food packaging volume, they say, in some types of food by up to 86%. I mean, that makes sense. Think about the size of a box of, I buy penne pasta a lot. It's not my favorite, but it's my kid's favorite one. Which, what weirdo kid likes penne over fusilli? But that's a whole nother subject. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to step up to the defense of penne, but oh, anyway. Oh, God, it's my least favorite pasta. <laughs> oh, hate mail. You can put right? it on your fork tines. Oh, yeah, but it just doesn't hold all the, I like the cheese in between the swirls is what I want. But (laughs) (laughs) not that we have opinions, not at all. (laughs) You look, you love your chicken tenders. I love my mac and cheese. Think about how much if that just came in a little flat pack. I mean, my gosh, like my whole second shelf of my pantry is pasta boxes. That would leave so much more space for more activities. (laughs) Well, and you get to more efficiently ship it. So the same truck burning the same fuel is Mm -hmm. moving more product. Mm hmm. Yeah. You use less material to package it. You use less shelf space in the store, requiring less resources to cool the store, less shelf space, less floor area. It's all wins. It is. 86%. That's impressive. But this really is, yeah, figure six is really great. Like, this is really cool. And they give you their pasta recipe in the appendix. Which is amazing. In the materials and methods. <laughs> I mean, I really hope that they, like, somebody was eating all these afterwards, right? When did this come yeah. out? Is this going to happen? Oh, it came out today. Oh, no, that's downloaded. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just came out last month, though. So Right. It, it is a May 2021 paper. Um, and it's in Science Advances, which it is a voluminous paper for Science Advances. It really is. I know. But, I mean... All these figures are totally worth it. This is super neat. Um, It's much more exciting than the abstract would lead on. (laughs) So I will say, you know, next time, uh, we hardly ever make pasta from scratch. Hardly ever? I never have, but that's impressive that you have. Go ahead. (laughs) I kind of want to try this. Yeah, of course you are. <laughs> like we have a machine shop, we can fabricate some I, little rollers. I know. That's what I was gonna say. Uh, Lindy, can you just hand over that dough? Great, thanks. <laughs> I'm gonna take this and go put it in the mill. I'll be Ex- right back. <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. Your intern's going to be like, what? <laughs> you want I'm sure we've never what? processed anything in there that's unhealthy to eat. Yeah, so it'll be fine. Just clean it off with some solvent before. <laughs> a little bit of acetone. Why does this uh, why does this geophone taste like fettuccine? <laughs> right. <laughs> this is great. Keep them coming, Daryl. <laughs> yeah, this was fantastic. And I think, you know, like a lot of papers, it's got really cool applications oh, I, uh, to industrial and real world problems. I feel that I'm going to be sharing this one quite a bit. So much so that people are like, oh, quit talking about this. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty neat. Well, if you have your own pasta experiments to share with us, we would love to hear them. Shannon, how can folks send in the results of their pasta pattern experimentation <laughs> and their calculations using a finite element modeling scheme <laughs> using ComSol Multisolve or similar tool? Uh, send me your pasta recipes. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can also post those on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. <laughs> Come find us in the Slack channel where I'm sure we will get all that information. We're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support this podcast, you may do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And even though seismologists rate our show as extreme plus plus bull hockey <laughs> whenever they hear us say it, <laughs> Shannon... Until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.